0: Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What you're about to listen to is the second part of a multi-part series on Machiavelli. This one runs a little longer, but I wanted to cover the ground that I covered in one coherent episode. And yeah, I hope you like the result. If you want the context of this, feel free to check out the first part where I discuss Machiavelli in general, the historical context, the general interpretive frame I'm going to be bringing to this, and I make some comments on the Republican tradition in interpreting Machiavelli. With that said, I think the episode mostly stands up as a standalone piece, so if you're good to just get started, please feel free to just join us here. If you do want the context, go back and check that out. I'll also make a quick note that I reference a couple of other conversations I've had. Um, All of those are just on the same podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts from, particularly those with Philip Pettit and Orlando Patterson. So if you want the context to those, I have big long series with both of those authors as well. Apart from that, let's get straight to it. This is part two on modern interpretations of Niccolò Machiavelli. If we believe that being a free person is intrinsically bound up in the practice of democracy, then how should we feel about a democratic outcome that seems to threaten every other sort of freedom that we hold dear? So to make it a little bit more concrete, if we believe in the will of the people, if we believe in Popular sovereignty. And if we believe that to be free, the people must be able to express themselves, they must um, be able to participate within their form of government. But the end result of that participation is a government like, say, that of Donald Trump, a government which strips away the rights and freedoms of migrants, which makes people of color, minority communities in our own country feel like they are no longer welcome in that country, feel like they are threatened, that their very personhood is being challenged and called into question. A government that backs the authoritarianism that's present in so much of our law enforcement, and more than that, that it's not an accident that people voted for that person, as I think many people did vote for Trump, not in spite of those things, but because of those things, that people really were motivated by a desire for some sort of authoritarianism, at least with regards to people that they didn't like. I'm not saying every Trump voter, but I think it's pretty clear now from surveys and studies that a great many of them were now. That provides a really clear, real-world instance of this sort of paradox of democracy that political theorists have been thinking about, well, forever, essentially. You know, how do you be a Democrat, but you don't like the particular outcome that's happened? And I raise that, not because I'm going to go into all of the different backs and forths and historical debates that try to get us out of that seeming paradox, but I note it because the paradox becomes sharper, and it becomes more pressing for a Republican political theorist. Republican, by the way, obviously not meaning the contemporary conservative political party in America, but this long tradition that we have in the history of political thought that has at its heart an idea of freedom, and understands freedom not as non-constraint, being left alone, which many libertarians and liberals understand freedom to mean, but as non-domination, not having anyone over you, being able to have a say in any decision that might affect you. In other words, a vision of freedom that necessarily is tied up very, very closely with the practice of participatory democracy. And that question is a little sharper, because if you regard the practice of participatory democracy as an intrinsic good, some of the ways that other ideological groupings or other systems of belief or political thought might try and get out of the democratic paradox aren't open to you anymore. So libertarians, classical liberals, strong individualists, those sorts of people, they can get out of the democratic paradox comparatively easily. And this is something that many of them have argued from that freedom is being left alone. It is, to quote Herbert Spencer, being left secure in your person and your property. It's just a purely individualistic thing where if the government or the mob or the rabble or whoever else is letting you control your own property and not interfering with you in any other way, then you're free. So democracy, to that account, is simply overall the best way of achieving that sort of freedom. Democracies tend to be more sympathetic to a sort of capitalist, individualist, property-holding ideal of freedom. And if sometimes democracies throw up a result that you don't like, well, that's just the process going wrong. And the way libertarians often solve that is saying, well, there should be constitutional constraints or rights or whatever that limit the scope of government. So government just isn't allowed to do those things, and you can only vote for governments that essentially will choose within those side constraints. So the libertarian, or the individualist, or the classical liberal, they have an answer to that. Now, that's something that many people find unsatisfying, because it's like, well, what if we don't like this individualist-capitalist thing? Can we not vote to change it? And the libertarian there can waffle, or they can just bite the bullet and say, no, you can't vote to change it. This is my rights. And Robert Nozick, the sort of arch-philosopher libertarian, says this. He says, you know, if a democracy is voting away my property rights, that's just me being a slave with thousands of masters or millions of masters, as opposed to one master. Democracy can't override this. Now, I don't like that position, but yeah, it's at least a coherent position. What about a progressive liberal, someone who has a more expansive notion of what the state can do, but nonetheless has a sort of John Stuart Mill individualist conception of freedom. Well, again, they tend to solve that problem by relegating democracy, not at the absolute center of the ideology, but just adjacent to it. It's a very valuable thing. It's intrinsically valuable in some senses because it educates and develops people but it's not the only thing of value. And indeed, its main value is there to support the central concepts of individuality, progress, and development. And indeed, liberals of that persuasion, have always had a somewhat uneasy relationship with democracy. So Mill comes to mind here, as well as someone like Tocqueville in the United States, where they were for expanding the franchise to bring more middle and working class voters into the political system. But they were also for setting quite clear limits on what the political system could do. Those limits were more expansive, Than just your person and your property. It was something like the public private divide. So the classic is Mills. You can do what you want unless it harms others. So the converse of that is a democratic government can legislate where it wants except for things that don't affect others. Now, I like that account a lot more. And in some ways, again, that provides a coherent response to the paradox of democracy, right? But is it just me, or does that become a little bit harder, where you say your central value, the thing we are absolutely appealing to as our ethical bedrock, is democracy in itself, is the will of the people. Democracy isn't an adjacent good or an instrumental good, it's our primary moral good. Now, that's a claim that both libertarians and progressive liberals tend to shy away from. It's also something that um, conservatives tend to shy away from, fascists tend to shy away from. There's some forms of radical socialism that can embrace it, but then they, like this sort of Republican tradition, open themselves up to what about Donald Trump, right? So here's Quentin Skinner This is a lecture he did, a public lecture, called The Liberty of Republics. It's on YouTube if you want to watch the whole thing. And he's talking about the role of liberty within the Republican tradition.
1: Now, um, in order to see where where Republicanism fits... I I think you have to recognize one crucial feature about the Republican tradition uh, generally, which is that this is a tradition which thinks that the most important value in our common life is freedom. Now, that needn't be the case, the contemporary uh, liberal presupposition is that the most important value is justice, whereas of course for the uh, Republican there would have to be a Republican ideal of justice. Um, Utilitarians would tell you that the most important value is the common good, various Marxist strands of thought would tell you that the fundamental ideal is enabling people to follow real interests. The Republican is the person who says that the fundamental value is, or i already said it, is freedom and what it is to be able to live freely in a civil association. So the fundamental value is freedom, and what you have to understand to understand republicanism is its view of freedom.
0: So there's a bit of Skinner, and, I mean, as he makes abundantly clear, freedom is the value for republicanism. And this gets it into an even deeper bind with this, because not only is freedom intrinsically valuable, but it really is the only thing that's intrinsically valuable. So Philip Pettit has a book, which I recommend you read, by the way, um, called Just Freedom, A Moral Compass for a Complex World. And it means what it says, that really, this is a morally consequentialist view, by the way, but the consequence that we're trying to maximise is freedom In the sense of non domination. So, in that book, Pettit writes the connection that republican theory makes between democracy and freedom is enough in itself to emphasize the importance that it gives to democracy. It restores to life the long standing association in popular thought between the two values and marks a contrast in this respect with approaches that cast freedom as non interference end quote. And he goes on to discuss how if you view freedom as merely non-interference, then democracy simply becomes an instrumental good. The best way of maximizing that, but not intrinsically good in itself, if hypothetically you could get an authoritarian state that had less interference, that would be more free. And Republicans want to say, and I think they're correct to say, that there's something a little bit off with that. There's something a bit off with the idea that a a benevolent dictator could be more free than a democracy, which is not to say that democracies never have problems, which brings us back to what about Trump? Now, I think one response that Republicans can and do make is that when we're talking about democracy, we're not just talking about the Congress or government. We're talking about both a broad and deep understanding of participation within decisions that affect us. If we can never be dominated, after all, and dominating means having someone who has that sort of absolute power over you, dominion, to use the Latin word, that's where that comes from, dominion, means to be in a state of domination, then that also applies to the workplace. It Im- implies a need for economic democracy, for unions, for workers on the board, for stuff like that. It implies a healthy skepticism about these sorts of mega corporations, you know, Amazon and Facebook and so on. How is that power held accountable? So, again, going back to um, Just Freedom by Philip Pettit, he says, quote, Republican democracy. Is essentially emergent and essentially evolving institution. It is emergent in the sense that the control it gives people emerges from the interaction of many different bodies operating in as many different points and as many different ways. And it is built on the basis of a mixed constitution. And it is evolving in the sense that popular control may only appear over the longer run, and not in every decision-making instance. It is an essentially slow and ideally developing process, end quote. So there you have, I think, a coherent view, which is the will of the people, as it were, is something that emerges over time, and anyone who says, well, this one individual vote is, quote-unquote, the will of the people, is kind of missing the point. And I think that's correct. And by the way, if you want more on Philip Pettit, I have a whole hour-long interview with him in an episode just called Neo-Republicanism, which actually might make a good companion to this episode. Is it just me, though? Or is there still... something there that's missing. I started the series by saying that there's something that we feel in its absence. I think many people on the contemporary sort of far left, people who are very concerned about income inequality and social justice and all of that, want to say that there's something about Trump which isn't just um, an outlier. It's not just like a blip that we're going to return to a sort of more over- underlying norm. there's something about Trump which is actually precisely against the will of the people, even though he won now there's a way you can answer that, and Philip Pettit does actually mention this in the same chapter as I've just um been quoting you from, where he says if you measure the contemporary democracy in the United States. A- against this republican model of freedom it succeeds in some ways but it fails on a number of accounts it fails because of the exclusion of many citizens from voting it fails because of gerrymandering and money in politics and the role of the supreme court and anyone any all of these things that politically informed lefties will know about so trump might be quote counter to the will of the people after all he lost the popular vote and only became president by winning the electoral vote, which we might see as a counter-majoritarian and hence anti-Republican institution. Nonetheless, even with all of those sort of factors baked in, It still feels like people want to say something stronger, and Trump didn't lose, by the way, the popular vote decisively. He lost it by, what was it, 1.5, 2 percentage points? It's easy to imagine a state of the world in which he had won, and yes, you know, that is one election result. One election result doesn't reveal to you an underlying norm of, like, what is in the good of the people. It's a long-run aggregate. Also, the election results that we have are given to us under non-ideal circumstances. But still, am I alone in feeling that we want to believe in democracy? We want to believe in the will of the people, and certainly those of us who believe in social justice as well as economic justice are about a sort of inclusive expression, a communal expression, of what is good. We're not we're not uniformly imposing it. I am not as like a white man, and I know people are gonna say you're identity politicking and whatever. Hold hold fire for a minute, okay, just hear me out. Um I'm not necessarily best placed to say what sorts of social relations, say, you know, a black trans woman is absolutely in her best interest. That's for them to put forward and really articulate. It doesn't mean I have to agree with them on everything. If they say the earth is flat, I'm allowed to voice scepticism. But actually, in general, in terms of the sort of social respect and dignity that many excluding, excluded groups are asking for, it might be my place to listen first. And so in which case, we do want to hold on to this idea that there is a will of the people. There is a collective expression of the common good. And Trump isn't like just a blip on the way to that or a quirk of our electoral system. There's something about that election and actually of many Republicans, it's not unique to Trump, that is explicitly counter to that Am I alone in having that impulse there, that there's a contradiction at the heart of that, that isn't neatly captured by libertarian or liberal theory, and that republican theory gets closer in some ways, but it still leaves something to be to be desired? So, when we find ourselves at this pass, I think this is when... We want to go to the history of political thought. We want to go to those documents which exist in the present and form a construction based on them that also exists in the present. Not to reconstruct following Dale Martin, we're never going to get back to the original Machiavelli, but to use the history of political thought as a way of broadening our imaginations and of giving structure and legitimacy political thought in the present. So let's go back and let's revisit some of these classical texts. Now, I've already said in the first episode, I did a lot of context and a lot of sort of looking at the different ways that Machiavelli has been interpreted. And I said, I'm going to go with the Machiavelli or the set of historically constructed Machiavellis that place him within the Republican tradition. So, in other words, I'm going to be assuming that Quentin Skinner is correct, and that the primary thing, and really the only thing, that Machiavelli values is freedom understood as non-domination. So, what does that mean for democratic governance? Now, for this episode, as I get into my Machiavelli, I'm going to read you some fairly big chunks of it, because... You're grown-ups, and you don't need just little two-second snippets. So let's get into this. And also, Machiavelli is just really, really fun to read. So everything from this week's episode is going to be coming from the discourses. The discorsi. Do you like my Italian accent? It's garbage, isn't it? Get used to it. It's coming back throughout this series. But this is one of the challenges I find with Machiavelli. And it's challenging because... I know I can't be the only person to have this thought, but he seems to be relatively clear and straightforward about what he says about democracy and the Constitution and so on. Machiavelli himself is not one of these, this isn't Hegel or Kant or one of these absolutely impenetrable philosophers. He writes in very everyday language and seemingly in very straightforward in his ideas and their presentation. So when you get this bewildering variety of different constructions of him, you sort of wonder, were people even reading the primary sources? But anyway, let's get into this, and let's just start with what Machiavelli says. This is right at the beginning of the Discourses about the different forms of constitution, because I think one of the the difficulties, the paradoxes, when we think about someone like Trump or Orbán in Hungary, is we in the modern world generally view the way we think about different types of government is existing on a spectrum from democracies to authoritarian governments. And some democracies are a bit more democratic than others, and some authoritarian governments are a bit more authoritarian than others. But there's essentially two different types. They're sort of free and unfree. Well, the ancient mind didn't see it that way at all. And the Renaissance mind, in being very deeply influenced by these ancient authors, didn't see it that way either. So let's go... chapter book one chapter two of the discourses which is simply entitled of the various types of government and to which of them the roman commonwealth belonged so a tiny bit of context here is machiavelli like many republican writers of the age rousseau also would fall into this category believes that rome is the exemplar of a good state in a similar way, both liberals and conservatives will sort of go back to the founding of America and say, what did the constitution say? What what, would the, what was the original intent of the framers? Stuff like that. They appeal to the past from legitimacy. He's doing nothing different there. He's appealing to the Roman Republic, and he's saying, well, what type was Rome? Because whatever type of state Rome was, by default, becomes the best state and the state that we should em- emulate. And just like when liberals and conservatives appeal back to the founding of the republic. They're often appealing to something that's mythical or something that, you know, would never be the result of sustained historical criticism, but it nonetheless matters in legitimating their ideas. So I'm not going to pass any comment on how historical Machiavelli's construction of Rome is. It might not be that historical at all, but nonetheless it's very important to him and very central to the project that he's trying to bring us. So just starting at the beginning of this chapter, he does a little introduction where he says, quote, I forego." All discussion concerning those cities which at the outset have been dependent on others, and shall speak only of those from their earliest beginnings which have stood entirely clear of any foreign control, being governed from the first as they shall please themselves, whether as republics or as princedoms. End quote. So just there, you can see that one of the um, consequences of this Republican vision of freedom, which Skinner brings in all the time, is the self-rule of the political unit. So it's non-domination for citizens. It's also non-domination for the state. And so Machiavelli says, I'm, only, I'm not concerning myself with like, countries that are the subject of an empire. I'm considering you know, free countries that have their own rules. Great. So that is in line with the Republican model of freedom that we've been talking about. Um, skipping ahead a little bit, he writes, quote, Desiring, therefore, to discuss the nature of the government of Rome and to ascertain the accidental circumstances which brought it to its perfection, I say, as been said by many who have written of government, that there are three forms known by the names monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy. And those who give its institutions to a state shall have recourse to one or another of these three according as it suits their purposes. Others, and, have many have thought, wiser teachers will have it that there are altogether six forms of government. Three of them utterly bad, and three good in themselves, but so readily corrupted that they too must be classified as pernicious End quote. and I love that turn of phrase: three bad, utterly bad, and three that will become bad, so they too must be classified as pernicious and I just want to point something out to, to you about Machiavelli is if you're reading him, and we always it comes to us through this. Fucking turgid, morbid, like Victorian English. The Bible does, the classics do, the Renaissance does. That we, we we lose the personality of these people. Machiavelli is not some dour academic bookworm gravely reciting to you maxims of old. Like the Machiavelli who became. A key part of Florentine foreign policy in his early 20s was a rambunctious, partying, womanising, kind of jocular sort. He was known as the life of the party. He was known as someone... Who always had the joke, often would make fun of himself. If you read his letters, he goes on in lurid and honestly starkly misogynistic detail about his sexual escapades. But what's endearing and what helps you get past the misogyny is the joke's always on him. He's always the one who's done something dumb. And He was kind of a frat boy, honestly. I mean, historians are going to hate all of these sort of cultural references I'm making. And then after many decades of service, after he's seen a lot of things, things that were unpleasant and matured him, but in many ways, and this is where the Machiavellian Machiavelli isn't wholly wrong, when he saw these brutal things that Cesare Borgia did, there was part of him, I think, in my construction of Machiavelli that was also a little bit excited Them, that also sort of got off on it all in a way. And that the heartbreak of his life wasn't some truly terrible political thing he witnessed, but that he was no longer able to be part of the political, that he was banished essentially from Florence when the Medici took over again and he had to live out the rest of his days in exile and he was always yearning to get back into it so if there is a side of Machiavelli that comes to us that sort of as a bitter old man there still I think shines through his writings a sort of quirkiness and a novelty and a jocularness a jocular sort of quality to him that, that he wants to be funny and a little bit outre a little bit shocking and he throws in little quips to his Writings all the time. We all know that sort of irreverent old man who says things to shock and get a rise, and always has a little smirk on his face, and wants to be clever and wants to be liked, and they can be very, very charming. They can also sometimes say things that are quite shocking, and that's my read on Machiavelli, and that's how you should be reading him when you read this as an original source, not as some Our, you know, don't read it as the Victorian language that it often comes to you in presentation. Through, so he said. Well, some people say there's three forms of government: monarchy, aristocracy, democracy. Other people, and he says, wiser teachers, wiser teachers have thought that there's six. And for each of them that he's just mentioned, there's a good form and a bad form. So monarchy's the good form, and because monarchy is implies a good wise just king when the king isn't wise or just that's a tyranny likewise uh, aristocracy is the good form and an oligarchy is the bad form democracy is the good fa- form and any guesses the converse of democracy anarchy so here's how the structure works is the types of government Aren't divided up on a sort of good or bad, free or unfree. They're divided up by how much participation there is within power. So when there's one person ruling, that's a monarchy when it's good and a tyranny when it's bad. When there's a few people ruling, that's an aristocracy when it's good and an oligarchy when it's bad. And when everyone is ruling, that's a democracy when it's good and an anarchy when it's bad. Now when Machiavelli says democracy, he doesn't mean at least in this sense a sort of representative liberal democracy like we know now. He means that if a if a power if a decision is being made democratically, that decision is put to the people as a whole and they vote and they decide. That is democratic power. It's sort of more like who takes the decision than what the overall framework is. Now, when he envisages democracy becoming anarchy, think of something like the Occupy Wall Street protests, who had a very democratic form of decision-making where every decision had to be voted on by everyone as a whole. But over time, as that progresses, it all just sort of falls apart. And I visited a number of um, the Occupy camps back in the day when that was happening, and you just sort of saw a sort of lawlessness, actually, where everyone sort of did what they want. There was conflict and contestation over everything. There was these very heated and very emotional battles, I remember, over, like, who would do the cleaning and the dishes. And had that not existed within the overarching framework of a nation-state, where eventually the police can come in and just, you know, arrest someone who's trying to sexually assault women there or something. Then you can imagine that could have gotten very dark indeed. So there is when you have pure democratic power, there is that tendency of it to sort of disintegrate. But that's not unique to democracy. What Machiavelli tells us is that that's common to any form of power. So if you have an aristocracy, if you have many people actually in the modern world find this quite desirable, if we were to say, let's just get the best and brightest and have them in charge, have pure technocratic governance, whoever knows the most about the military, they should head that up. Whoever knows the most about the economy, you know that should be the people in charge of that. And what Mikey Valley would say is that's great. And you might find the right people for the job. But over time, Their individual interests will come to outweigh it. And even if, let's just say, we find people not only of very strong technocratic expertise, but very strong morals, people who won't be corrupted by the powers of the job, well, you know, while they're in office, things might be quite good. But once they're out of office, someone will take it over from them, and the chances are the person who takes it over from them won't have those moral commitments, and so they'll start abusing those powers. Same thing happens with, um, one person or one man, they would have said this is all in a very male-dominated world, so I'll just flag the the sexism occasionally for you. One-man rule, you might get a really great person. You might get, like, your Charlemagne or something, who's a a really benevolent despot. But, you know, their son or their son probably won't be. And then, this is where republicanism comes in, is Machiavelli says these are sort of the pure forms of government. And the best government is a government that combines the different forms. So a government that has multiple forms within it, that's a republic. So a republic, think of the US, right? You have the one, the few, and the many. You have the one, you have the presidency, executive power. You have the few, that would be like the Senate and the courts and stuff like that. And then you have the many, which is popular participation within that system. And he says that's the framework that's really best for securing liberty. But note again, and note there's an underlying consequentialism to a lot of republicanism in that what divides the good and the bad forms isn't the structure of power, it's is it being used in the common good? Is it producing good consequences? So the rule of one, the few, and the many can produce good consequences for a short time, but if you want to produce good consequences for a long time, you need a republic. And I think that makes sense, right? But then, what are the consequences that are good that we're trying to maximise? Now, interpreting as I am Machiavelli as a republican theorist, there's only really one thing that can fit that bill. And by good consequences, we mean freedom. So, a monarchy might maintain freedom for a while, but then a tyranny will take it away. An aristocracy might maintain it for a while, or a democracy, but then that will collapse into oligarchy or anarchy. Whereas a mixed constitution... Can maintain it indefinitely. But then that's an odd notion of freedom, right? In that it's a freedom that seems untethered to the particular constitutional form, albeit there's one constitutional form, a republic, that tends to protect it better than the others. But I thought I just said Machiavelli is committed to freedom as non-domination and the rule of the people as the primary source of wisdom and freedom in a republic. And this is something that he says explicitly by the way. And this is where Machiavelli is fun is there's a chapter towards the end of book 1 of the discourses that is literally called the people are wiser and more knowing than a prince. And he literally says government is better trusted to the people than any sort of like princely or aristocratic rule and he says and this is in Machiavelli does this a lot he says this is an opinion which everyone else will disagree with and there's always that subversive quality to Machiavelli he's subversive in the prince in how he advises princes to rule but he's also subversive in the discourses where he says everyone's going to disagree with me on this and he sets himself up like that And he says, in spite of everyone saying how fickle, unwise the people are, and stop me if I'm wrong, but how often do we hear this today? How often do we hear the ignorance and the lack of information and the prejudice of democratic voters being reviled in our discourse? And he says, no, he says that the people rule overall more wisely. And his argument, typically Machiavellian, is that, yeah, people make mistakes yeah, they do stupid things, but princes do that far more. And they almost necessarily do it. And he then goes on to say something which I think is really interesting and still applies today. He says, quote, the prejudice which is entertained against the people arises from this, that any man may speak ill of them openly and fearlessly, even when the government is in their hands. Whereas princes are always spoken of with a thousand reserves And a constant eye to consequences. End quote. Now isn't that so true? And isn't that so true if you think about it today that although obviously Trump or whoever lacks, you know, the sort of truly authoritarian powers which sometimes he seems to crave, people are cautious, they're cautious of criticising those in power whereas there's no nothing bad is going to happen to you if you talk ill of socialists on a college campus is nothing you can do so very safely same same with people campaigning for social justice you do so very safely well in spite of the imaginings of some people right so we've got Are pieces on the table. Let's try and start pulling all of this together, right? So, Machiavelli is a Republican theorist, meaning that his primary, his prior moral value, prior here, meaning both before and above, is freedom. And he understands freedom as non domination. And he says again and again in the beginning of the first book of the discourses and towards the end of it and in the second, he's constantly saying, the people are the ones we need to listen to. The people get it right. Vox Populi, Vox Dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God, right? Machiavelli quotes that directly. But then he's also saying that that sort of popular will, that sort of freedom, is something that is best preserved under a republic, but can also exist, albeit disintegrate, under monarchy and aristocracy. So what's going on here? How do we pull it all together? Now, you know I love method and I bang on about method, so I'll try and not do that. But I think to, like, pull it all together, this is where we need to start thinking in a clear, step-by-step, rigorous way about what is it that we're doing to these texts. Now, I've already said I'm attempting to extract an ideological position from them. I'm attempting to use these first-hand sources as a way of producing a worldview that will help us make sense of the question I posed at the outset, as well as other ones in the modern world. So if I'm interpreting this as an ideology, I'm attempting to get an ideology out of it, then what is it that I'm expecting to find? What is an ideology? Well, I talked about it briefly in the last episode, and I've talked about it at length on prior episodes. Here's my definition in a sentence. An ideology is a particular configuration of essentially contestable concepts. So there's two sides of that definition. An ideology is made up of essentially contestable concepts, those are its building blocks, and sort of what an ideology is, how you describe republicanism or liberalism or libertarianism is a patterning of those concepts, it's a set of relationships between them. So let's start with this first side first essential contestability. So again, I'm just following Michael Frieden on this. Essential contestability comes from a really famous paper by uh, Gale called Essential Contestability. And Frieden modifies that in a few ways. So without going through the full history, here are the features of an essentially contestable concept. So concepts like freedom, justice, fairness, equality, are all essentially contestable concepts. So the first feature is that an essentially contestable concept is appraisive. It signifies some kind of valued or disvalued achievement. So we, you know, freedom is a valued achievement. Fairness is a valued achievement. If if we say that something is Fair, we're accrediting an action with a positive appraisal. It can also be disvalued, so unfairness, and there can also be concepts that have a sort of moral ambiguity to them. So think of power or the political as essentially contestable concepts. These can both be positive and negative, depending on the understanding and the circumstance, but essentially contestable concepts are evaluative terms. They Signify value or lack of value. The second, and this is the real key, and I'm going to try and explain this in a way that's not like jargony and linguisticy. But the essentially contestable concepts are internally complex. If you imagine like um, a ball with lots of other balls within it, they have like lots of different internal parts and we're going to have to make a decision as to which internal parts we like or prioritize over others. So let's get a concrete example. Liberty, freedom, I use the words interchangeably, is an essentially contestable concept as the first thing implies it's bestowing value on certain things. Secondly, it's internally complex. You know, liberty could mean, as we've been discussing, non-constraint in the liberal tradition. It could also mean non-domination in the republican tradition. So there's lots of different ways you can go with it. And, and this is really key, those components themselves may be potentially indeterminate. So in other words, what freedom means is, at the first glance, not immediately obvious. You're gonna to have to make a decision whether it's stoic freedom, liberal freedom as non-constraint, republican freedom as non-domination, some sort of collectivist fascist freedom as blood and soil or something like. All of the obviously we'll have preferences within that, but all of these are different possibilities. But then just merely putting the its non-constraint or non-domination still actually doesn't tidy it up for you fully because it just moves the question down the road. Well, what do we mean by non-constraint or non-domination? So, you know, non constraint I did a whole series on this, has been interpreted by libertarians as the individual being left alone in their person and their property, whereas it's been interpreted by more progressive liberals as, yes, the individual being left alone in the private sphere, but also them being aided with education and healthcare and stuff like that in the public sphere, right? So essentially contestable concepts, to recap, are value terms that have multiple different meanings. And even once you get into the specific components of them, those components themselves will also have multiple different meanings. Final part of the definition is that it's something that's open to modification or reassessment in light of changing circumstances. So the particular ways that ideas will combine together, will change over time, right? So, how does that help? Well, the next part of the definition, the first part is they're built of essentially contestable concepts. The next part is that ideologies aren't just, it's not just like freedom, done. Ideologies will link together, a number of different ideas a number of different essentially contestable concepts into a recognizable pattern and that pattern is the sort of dif- the definition of that ideology so liberalism links together a particular understanding of individuality of freedom of progress of development of the social structure and those things sort of define each other freedom is individual expression constrained and nourished by society to develop and progress for the social good. And you can sort of define the other terms by reference to the other concepts. So that particular pattern of concepts helps deal with that property of essential contestability, that each of these concepts have indeterminate components, and those components themselves are indeterminate. That problem is sort of solved by ideologies in a way by putting a bunch of these concepts together. Now, the way in which ideologies political, key word as political ideologies, do that isn't random. D- different ideologies do them in different ways, but they tend to follow a, a-, a core structure. So again, following from Frieden, Frieden says we can generally categorize three sort of layers of an ideology, core, adjacent, and perimeter. And so by analogy, think of like the structure of an atom, where in in the very middle you have sort of protons and neutrons, you've got that core, and then you've got stuff whizzing around it and how many things whizzing around it will be supported depends on the core and vice versa, right? So the core is the most central or valued concept. These will be closely linked and provide the most substantive definitions of key terms in a way that's mutually supporting, as well as mutually limiting. And the defining feature of an ideological grouping is a particular patterning of core concepts. So, for libertarianism, this is individuality and freedom, arguably also uh property. You know we can debate that for republicanism, I mean, you know already what are the core concepts of republicanism is freedom and non-domination, right? Now that's not enough in itself. There's going to be another layer around that because, like I say, freedom is non-domination or freedom is individual protection. Cool, great two thumbs up, but what does that mean? You need an additional layer of concepts to flesh these out, and these are your adjacent concepts. So although they're not the defining feature of an ideology, adjacent concepts are essential in order to flesh out the the, the core concepts further and apply them into the real world. Because Ideologies are bridges between political thought and political action, and that's the final layer, which is the perimeter. And the perimeter of an ideology is where the values intersect with concrete policies. So perimeter concepts, these link core and adjacent concepts to our immediate experience of politics and society and to practical political issues. So perimeter concepts are those that can attach themselves to a range of events or phenomena which taken together a sort of quote a policy or an, an issue. So something like universal suffrage, right, if that would, that would be a perimeter concept within both liberal and republican ideology. Okay, so I'm I'm wrapping up the theory stuff, but I wanted to get all of that down because that's going to make sense of Machiavelli, and that's going to allow us to apply it to the real world and to the problems I've been talking about. Now, the key thing to notice about this, we have our core concepts, so freedom, non-domination. We have adjacent concepts that will flesh those out, and then we have a perimeter where those concepts interact with real concrete decisions, that the thing I want to notice about this, and the thing that I think is absent in so much of Machiavelli interpretation, including interpretation I quite like, like that of Quentin Skinner, is the way we use particular pieces of value terminology is highly interlinked. How we understand one particular term, and this may be at a subconscious level, but how we understand one particular term will affect the meaning that we can credibly supply to another. So the technical name for this, don't need to get hung up on this, but the technical name for this is conceptual indeterminacy. That means that concepts at the perimeter, i.e. interacting with real-world concrete policy preferences, concepts at the perimeter will be changed and conditioned by changes in the core and adjacent concepts. And the core and adjacent concepts will be in turn conditioned by changes at the periphery. So from an interpretive standpoint, this means we have to understand that the relationship between core, adjacent, and perimeter is reciprocal and can only be understood in its reciprocity. Now, that doesn't mean that it has to be perfectly logically coherent on all fronts. So, the idea of logical constraints in ideology interpretation is a loose hemming in rather than a strict set of rules. There will be contradictions in ideologies. All ideologies have their contradictions, but at the same time it would be weird would it not for someone to hold a very individualist property holding view of freedom but then also support socialist policies to do with worker control over the board and it's not about absolute logical consistency it would just sort of be weird to think of one person saying the same thing saying both of those things in a sentence. And I think this is sort of the, the piece that I, the methodological twist that I'd like to add to the Republican read of Machiavelli. So I've been with Skinner and Pettit so far. I've agreed that Machiavelli is a Republican theorist, and I've agreed with them in in terms of interpretative method to start with the core concepts, i.e. freedom, and to start with looking at those core concepts within the overall cultural framework of the age. So I've gone with them in terms of their method, in the first two steps. I now want to make a methodological tweak, which is to look at the reciprocal interaction of core concepts and po- with adjacent concepts with policy preferences as a way of understanding what those core concepts really are and really mean. And that interpretive tweak is going to produce a different conception of liberty that, while Republican is distinct from. It's a different member of the family. So this is something you don't get so much in Skinner. Um, He'll give a history of Machiavelli's life. Um, He'll talk about his career in the Florentine Republic and how that might have affected his work. So, for instance, he argues, and I think this is plausible. I mean, I don't know, but I think this is plausible. The, The opening structure of the prince is a reflection of his relationship with the... Medici. That's just in his book Machiavelli. I think that's probably plausible. But what he tends not to do is to look at the treatment of perimeter concepts in Machiavelli's work itself. Skinner brings to these texts an interpretive paradigm, which is a set of core and adjacent concepts. So concretely, Um, He's concerned with the Republican core concepts of freedom and non-domination and a range of closely connected adjacent concepts like individual self-rule, a participatory political arena, national self-determination, and the autarky of the political unit. What he usually does not do is ask what set of perimeter concepts these would imply, nor does he really get into too much what set of perimeter concepts or like concrete preferences they implied for the author. Now, I should say that Philip Pettit does do this. So, whereas Skinner tends to be more interested in just bringing us a set of core and adjacent concepts, Philip Pettit brings us a similar, though not identical, set of core and adjacent concepts and also fully fleshes it out. So, again, in his book, Just Freedom, which I've been reading a bit recently, it's divided into two parts the idea of freedom and the institutions of freedom. And he really fleshes out a set of um, perimeter concepts or policy preferences in the modern world that he believes is implied by that Republican vision. Now, that's not exactly what I'm talking about here. And to be fair to Pettit, he doesn't go into too much depth. He cites him a couple of times, but he doesn't do a full um, hermeneutic analysis of Machiavelli and that ideology. He just notes him on a couple of occasions. I'm not talking about what this ideology would imply today, necessarily. I'm talking about what it implied to the author, like making sense of the author's worldview as a way of understanding their core concepts. So, you know, I'm not at all saying we want to take the policy preferences from Machiavelli. You know, Machiavelli did not think mercenary armies were a great way of unifying Italy. This is not something that we're going to port over into the modern world. However, understanding that why he thought that existed in a reciprocal relationship with what he thought about freedom allows us to understand what he thought about freedom. And in turn, if we so wish, we can apply that to the modern world. So then, I've been circling the drain for long enough. Let's sort of get into making sense of all of this together, and I've given you my framework for doing so. So let's get back to the text. What is fundamental for Machiavelli about freedom, assuming freedom to be its primary value, and assuming he understands it as non-domination? Let's get to what he says about this. So I think really the central chapter here, and this is something that a lot of people have circled around, is chapter four of the first book of the Discourses, which is called, and you've got to love Machiavelli chapter titles, because they 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 give you what you're gonna get. Quote, that the disunion between the Senate and people of Rome made Rome both free and powerful. End quote. Isn't that interesting? The disunity between the Senate and people of Rome made Rome free and powerful. And I'm going to read you the whole thing, and I'll do just two quick explainers before we get in. Like I say, Machiavelli's not a technical philosopher. You can just read this stuff. Um, He references the Tarquins, those are the kings of Rome, right? And he says in the preceding chapter, he says, Men never do good unless they're forced to. And he says that under the Tarquins, the kings, the nobles were kept in fear and were always scared that the kings might use the people against them. And then he says, quote, but no sooner were the Tarquins gotten rid of than the nobles thus revealed of their fears began to spit forth against the people all the venom which before they had kept in their hearts offending and insulting them in every way that they could conserving confirming sorry what i have observed already that men never behave well unless compelled And whenever they are free to act as they please, they are under no restraint, and everything falls at once into confusion and disorder, end quote. Elsewhere in that, the preceding chapter, he talks about the natural arrogance of the nobles. This, by the way, um, is the sort of Republican freedom-loving Machiavelli. So um, let no one pretend Machiavelli is necessarily an optimist, but I think this is real. So going on to the next chapter, chapter four, that's the first thing, the context of the removal of the Tarquins. And as soon as that happens, the nobles, he says, just let forth with all of their fury and contempt for the common people, all of their disdain. The other thing I want to bring um, to your attention in this chapter is tumults, this word tumultuous, which he talks about this can sort of this can make it seem that he's talking about something very civil and very mild he's talking about big public mass protests maybe even like in contemporary parlance riots isn't up too far as martin libovoci in from fight to debate machiavelli and the revolt of the Compi," writes there are very good grounds for fear On reading the accounts of what mobs did in the 14th century, car burnings by our suburban youth seem mild in comparison. So I'll use the word protests, I'll sub in for that, as to give a better sort of sense of the visceralness of what Machiavelli is talking about here. And I'm going to read you all of chapter four, because, like, a lot of people have a lot to say about this little bit of Machiavelli, and it's absolutely pivotal for understanding the republican construction of Machiavelli, and particularly what's going on when he talks about liberty. So let's just read it all together. So it's not a long chapter, it's three big paragraphs. Quote, touching on the protests which prevailed in Rome from the extinction of the Tarquins through to the creation of the Tribunes, discussion of which I have no wish to avoid. And as to certain other matters of a like nature i say i wish to say something in opposition to the opinion whom many assert so end quote, just as an aside. There Machiavelli goes again. He's giving you a little warning that he's about to say something important. He's going, and now I'm going to say something which no one else agrees with me on. So this is like Machiavelli's little cue. Now I'm going to be subversive. Now I'm going to say something counter-expectational. Now I'm going to push your intuitions around a little bit. And it's difficult to get into the context of this, but apparently what he's going to say here is meant to be really shocking to the audience, because he gives them that flag. What you're about to hear is going to be shocking. Um, So he says, the opinion of many who assert that Rome was a turbulent city and had fallen into disorder, and that had not her fortune and military prowess made amends for other defects, she would have been inferior to every other republic. So he's saying, end quote, sorry, most people say that sort of Rome succeeded in spite of these protests and disorder and disunion. That's the common opinion, right? And now he's saying, I'm I'm, going to tell you something different. So, quote, I cannot indeed deny that good fortune and the armies of Rome were the causes of her empire. Yet it certainly seems to me that those holding this opinion fail to perceive that in a state where there are good soldiers, there must be good order and, generally speaking, good fortune. And looking to the circumstances of this city, meaning Rome, I affirm that those who condemn the disunion between the nobles and the people condemn what was the main cause of Rome becoming free, and give more attention to the protest and the uproar wherein this disunion was attended than to the good results that came from it. Not reflecting, not thinking about, that in every republic there are two competing factions, those of the people and the nobles. And it is in this conflict that all laws favorable to freedom have their origin. As may readily be seen to have been the case in Rome, From the time of the Tarquins to that of the Gracchi, a period of over 300 years, the protests, the the riots, I think isn't too big a word, in Rome seldom gave occasion to punishment by exile and very seldom to bloodshed. So that we cannot declare these protests to have been disastrous or that the Republic to have been disorderly, which during that time, on account of her internal broils, banished no more than 8 to 10 of her citizens, and put very few to death, and rarely inflicted monetary penalties. End quote. So that, I'm just going to make a quick aside here. Note what he's appealing to as, like, the standard of how we judge whether a political action is to... um be acceptable or not so according to sort of modern centrist liberalism we say well free speech and more than that civility you've got to address your opponents with decorum everyone's got to be no no no. machiavelli's saying you know this is all good not that many people died that's his standard right he's saying we only banished like eight to ten people no and not that many were killed that's his standard of sort of what appropriate political engagement looks like. I just want to flag flag that. So continuing on, nor can we reasonably pronounce that a city is ill-governed wherein we find so many instances of virtue. Virtu, I'll come back to that word in the next episode. Um, but roughly you might translate virtu as excellence. So nor can we reasonably pronounce that a city is ill-governed when we find in it so much that is excellent. I'll translate virtu as excellence. For excellent actions have in their origin the right training, and the right training is found in wise laws. And it was and wise laws in these very protests which you thoughtlessly condemn. For he who looks at the results of protests will find that by and large they did not lead to banishments, nor hurtful violence to the common good, but to laws and ordinances beneficial to public freedom. And should any object to the behaviour that the Romans was extravagant and outrageous, for We will see the assembled people to be heard shouting against the senate, and the senate against the people, and for the whole people to be seen rushing wildly through the streets, closing their shops, quitting the town. All of these things, which we will say, terrify only those who read of them. It might be answered that the inhabitants of all cities And most especially cities which seek to make use of their people in matters of importance have their own ways of expressing their wishes, and among which the city of Rome had the custom that when its people sought to have a law passed that they followed, or one another to these courses mentioned, or else refused to be enrolled as soldiers. And to pacify them, something of their demands had to be conceded, but the demands of a free people are rarely hurtful to freedom, since they originate either in being oppressed or in the fear that they are about to do so. End quote, and just a little aside. So he's saying, yes, you know, this might seem terrifying. The entire people rushing through the streets, armed, by the way, um, shouting out, crying, nothing to do with civility at all here. He says that might seem terrifying, but that is what is the source of laws which secure freedom, because the demands of a free people are never hurtful to freedom, since the What causes this is the belief by the people that they are oppressed or the fear that they're about to do so. And he goes on to say, quote, "'When the fear is groundless, "'it finds its remedy in public meetings, "'wherein some person can show by argument "'that the people are deceiving themselves. "'For although the people may be ignorant, "'they are not, as Cicero says, "'incapable of being taught the truth, "'but are readily convinced.'" By when it is told to someone in whose honesty they trust, and he concludes, we should therefore be careful how we censure the government of Rome, and should reflect that all of the great results affected by that republic could not have come about without good cause. And if popular protest led to the creation of the tribunes, then it merits praise since these magistrates not only gave due influence to the popular voice in government, but also acted as guardians of Roman freedom, as will be shown in the following chapter, end quote. And the following chapter is, he says, whether freedom is safer in the hands of the people or the nobles. And he says it's safer in the hands of the people. Okay, so that was a big chunk of primary text, and I gave you my own interjections to try and get through it. But let's recap. So he says, this is going to be really shocking to you. You are going to be shocked. So this is what Machiavelli does to sort of just flag to his reader. Okay, key passage coming up. And he says, big, messy, noisy protests are a good thing because they reflect the desire of the people not to be oppressed. And they can get that instantiated into law. And this is quite shocking, right? It might be shocking today. Let me try and translate this into modern parlance. In modern parlance, I might say something like this Many have condemned so much of what's happened in American history. We look back and we see the civil rights movement as succeeding through restrained and moderate leaders, but condemn the rioting and the burning of cities by African Americans. Those who condemn that, I think, do so naively, for they are not taking into account the exact things which made the American Republic both free and powerful. People riot, people protest when they feel like they're being oppressed and they feel like they're being powerless, and this is the only mechanism which they have to give vent to that desire not to be oppressed, not to be dominated, not to be humiliated. And were the results really that bad? Cars were burnt, houses were burnt, but not that many people were killed. And while that's tragic, we have to look at the good results that that brought forth, that civil discourse and peaceful protest would probably not have been enough. And that through the burning of cities that happened when Martin Luther King was assassinated, the prevailing power structures were forced, not through the kindness of their own hearts, but forced to take into account some of these concerns, were forced to admit in some limited and still imperfect ways black Americans into their power structures, into their businesses, and whereby so doing, America became much more free and much more stable and much more powerful, end quote. So I can just hear historians screaming, but that's sort of, I think, the thrust of what Machiavelli's saying is he says, if you look at the burning of cities in American history, and you say, oh, well, America sort of succeeded in spite of this. No, America succeeded because of it, these are the actions which made America free and powerful, because those were the cause of the greater freedom. I want to add to our Republican core of freedom and non-domination. I want to add two concepts that are going to be very closely adjacent and um, don't this is going to, what's going to give me my recognizably distinct Republican variant, and that's the many and the few. So, in talking about Roman history, he talks about the people and the nobles, which is definitely a part of Roman history. Um, and, and you find it in modern thought, but what I want to be clear is this is pre Marxist, pre sort of modern economics. We're not merely talking about access to wealth, although we are talking about that. And this read of that there is always disunion between the many and the few, the nobles and the people, is, is something that we can find an intellectual history for. While what I've just read you is very distinctively Machiavelli, he's getting it from somewhere. So this does come from Livy, which is one of his main sources, but the big Roman author that you want to talk about here is Sallust who has, again, this sort of like pro-class conflict. So a lot of the perimeter practices that Machiavelli advocates are linked to this adjacent concept of the upper class as necessarily dominating, greedy, arrogant, and malicious. And um, you can see that in some, not all certainly, but some Roman authors. So this is um, from um, Sallust he says, of the upper classes, what hope of you of mutual confidence or harmony? They wish to be lords and masters. You wish to be free. They desire to inflict injury, you to prevent it, End quote. So again, you have what he was talking about, the desire of the few to dominate. And that's, again, so You know, we have freedom. What does freedom mean? It means non domination. Okay, what does non domination mean? When we get to our next step, this is where I'm going to say something different. Non domination is intrinsically linked to the power structure of a society, and those in power will not just wish to maintain that power, they will not just wish to rationally pursue their self interest. Those concepts weren't available to Machiavelli. Those in power wish to dominate. Remember, in Book One, Chapter Three: Machiavelli, talking about the natural arrogance of the nobles, and Sallust, who I, I can only assume drawing from, they wish to be lords and masters, they wish to have dominion, and you wish to be free, and they desire not just to have their power and maintain it, they desire to inflict injury on you. Now, what's genuinely original in Machiavelli's analysis that we don't find in Sallust? is how the conflict between these two dispositions can be the source of liberty. So the central contrast for Machiavelli is a contrast of competing desires. Two desires that are irreconcilable, but both will always exist. That of the powerful to dominate and of the powerless not to be dominated, not to be humiliated. And the defense of freedom must always be entrusted to the, quote, lower class. Now, Machiavelli allows, actually, that elite rule can have advantages and that, you know, this lower class desire for freedom does need some constraints. But he eventually concludes that, quote, disturbances are much more often caused by halves. And again, he does this thing where he says, I'm going to defend something that all writers attack and say that, like we've visited, that this is that they are wiser and more knowing than the prince. So let's start to link this in with some of the perimeter concepts that we explored at the beginning. What's going on with our typology of states? right? Remember that? We have monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, they're bad forms, and then republic is a mixed form. One thing to just quickly note there in terms of sourcing. Is Machiavelli's getting that typology? It looks Aristotelian, but it's not. He's getting it from Polybius, not Aristotle. And that's an important difference because Aristotle does not at all share this sort of um, pro-people view. Aristotle has a very typically aristocratic disdain for those who do manual labour, which is exactly opposite to Machiavelli who condemns, quote, those who live in idleness on the luxury of their estates, end quote. <laughs> the 1% in today's parlance, right? And by shifting away from Aristotle and to Polybius, that involves the elevation of democracy to a good form of government. So he's using his sources in a particular way to validate his understanding of the people as the sort of unit of freedom, the the, the people as the the Heroes of the story, as it were. So let's tie it all up. You remember I said that there's core, adjacent, and perimeter concepts. So let's start at the perimeter, which is a preference for a mixed constitution. Now, the logic for a mixed constitution in liberal theory is different. It's sort of this Newtonian thing of balancing forces and reaching an equilibrium. Machiavelli is not saying that, nor is he like a forerunner of that. Here goes the argument. The best constitution is a mixed one. Perimeter, right? As this balances out the competing desires of the few and the many. Perimeter to adjacent, right? The desire of the few... to dominate, and the many is not to be dominated, adjacent to core. And to live in a state of non-domination is to be free. Core concept, right? So now we've just traced a path from the perimeter to the core. And that's when you know you've sort of got an ideology figured, is you have your map, and when you draw a line through the map, you create an argument right? So let's draw the line the other way and see if that still makes sense as an argument. So let's start in the core and draw it outwards. So starting in the core, to be free, core concept, we must live in a state of non-domination. That's our core, right? And so to be free, we must live in a state in which the desire of the rich to dominate, core to adjacent, is constrained by a mixed constitution perimeter. So drawing the arrow out the other way makes sense as well. So that's our map of our ideology. We have a core of freedom and non-domination fleshed out by adjacent concepts of, yes, the autarky of the political unit, and yes, participatory um, framings. But the Big core concepts, which I'm going to keep bringing it back to and inform our meaning of freedom, are the few and the many, the powerful and the powerless, and their desires to dominate and control and humiliated, and humiliate and the desire not to be. So... In considering this relationship, then, we get a different account of Republican liberty than that which we get in Skinner. So we can maintain this central relationship of freedom of non-domination, but it's got to be significantly revised. So Skinner considers non-domination as self-rule in relation to the individual and the state as a whole. But to this, I think we also need to add groups within the state. For a state to maintain freedom, it must preserve an internal dynamic which allows popular control over elites and for opposition between the two, constrained by rule of law. So so what does non-domination mean? To be in a state of non-domination, the many... And I'll get into what we mean by that. But to be in a state of non-domination, the many must perpetually reassert themselves against the desire of the rich to dominate them. This isn't a static model. This isn't an equilibrium model. The rich, the powerful, the privileged, we might say in today's parlance, are always going to be trying to humiliate and dominate and put down those under them. And those who are less powerful must continually reassert themselves in that. And it's in that resisting, in that resisting domination, in that denying humiliation that you find freedom. So what emerges from this, I think, is a class-based understanding freedom is a holistic property of the people as a whole. It's not just a set of necessary and sufficient conditions that applies to someone. It's something you feel, something you live, and something you feel and live in community with others. It's, it's a set of traditions, customs, mores, and attitudes. I'm thinking, I was at a funeral tragically recently of someone who had been an organiser for unions and all of the sort of socialists coming together and reaffirming a sense of identity with each other, a sense of almost family, of camaraderie, right? That... That feeling of connectedness, connectedness in asserting that we will not be dominated by employers who want to have us on employee-at-will contracts, who want to micromanage us, who want to tell us, who want to enforce a sort of private tyranny, a collective camaraderie in denying that, that is freedom to Machiavelli, I think. So Republican forms, constitutional forms, are the best way of maintaining that liberty, but they don't themselves constitute it. So here's what I'm arguing for in this episode. In a nutshell, then, freedom appears to me in Machiavelli as a sort of class-based pride, a resolution commonly held among the comparatively powerless, that they will not be dominated. We will not be humiliated. We will not be made to be feel less than our capricious and arrogant overlords, the more powerful, be that in the workplace, in our democracy, or even in our, Machiavelli wouldn't have said this, but in our social structures in terms of Male and female, white and black and so on, a desire not to be humiliated. That's I think what he's driving at. And I've made that in a very modern way. But that I think is Machiavellian liberty. And I'm gonna call that resistance freedom, because it's freedom found in the collective resistance to domination, which will always be there. So going back to Machiavelli quickly, this this understanding of freedom allows us to make sense of a number of passages which seemingly contradict um, the sort of more traditional Skinner Republican model. Um, For instance, I I asked this in the first episode, why is Machiavelli okay with saying that freedom can exist under a monarchy if neo-Roman liberty is simply individual rule understood as political participation in an autarkic state, then it would seem like a contradiction in terms to say that this existed under a monarchy. It just doesn't make sense, right? It's counter-definitional. However, if you take the conception of liberty which I'm interpreting Machiavelli as having, this could plausibly exist under a monarchy. If, for instance, as he claims the early kings of Rome were, Probably counter-historically, the monarch was committed to protecting the people from the aristocrats. Remember, Book 1, Chapter 3, encouraged them to develop civic pride, to take part in the maintenance of the state, including the military, and considered demands from them fairly. They would, in a sense, be free. Now, according to a sort of neo-Republican Skinnerite conception of freedom, The people would not be free, as they'd be dependent on the will of the king. But Machiavelli himself doesn't seem to follow that line of logic. They're free, they're just at greater risk of losing that freedom. And again, you can argue, is Machiavelli being fully consistent here? Maybe not, but it's broadly emotionally consistent. What follows what follows when you have that collective solidarity with others that camaraderie to use a modern socialist term that meaning you find with others in saying we will not bow down to you we're not living on our knees thank you that statement that collective statement of resistance if that's what we mean by freedom then what follows from that right well this is what's fun about ideological analysis is once We've used the relationship between core adjacent and perimeter to flesh out and gain a better understanding of the core, as we've done here. We can map it forward again. And let's look at one of those, which is aversion to mercenaries. Machiavelli hates. He goes on about this ad nauseum. He says as much about not liking mercenary armies as he does about liberty in all of his works. Why? Why Well, because Machiavelli's primary commitment is to freedom in the sense that I've attributed to him. He therefore wants to have reasons to integrate the people into the power structures of the time, both political and military. So in order to safeguard their freedom, the people should have access to government. They should be able to vote and put their own people in, but they should also constitute the apparatus of violent force so that's why he's against mercenaries mercenaries are a means by which oligarchic regimes can maintain power without the support of their people consider also his insistence that a good prince should not have fortresses this makes more sense now doesn't it fortresses we think of as a tool for invasion however In the feudal age, fortresses are just as often a tool of local lords to dominate and control the local population. Finally, and I flagged this in my first episode, consider Machiavelli's arguments against having a military that's reliant on cavalry. What does that have to do with anything? These make very little sense, by the way, in military terms. But this gives us it, right? The upkeep of war horses is expensive and only available to the very rich. Societies with a cavalry based military tend to be, or tend to become, feudally based. And that feudally based social structure, a hierarchy of clientels, that is inimical to freedom as Machiavelli conceived it, and to the politics that would secure its maintenance. So let's map this onto the modern world then. Skinner's attempting to tell the story of liberty before liberalism, which I think is a really admirable venture and a valuable thing to do. i'm doing something a little different here, and I want to tell the story of class conflict before Marxism now and this is obviously an ideological project, so let's take what we've got from it, this, this idea of freedom, and start mapping it on to the modern world so Here's the first thing, is the, what we mean by people in this case is variable. It isn't located necessarily with a particular faction or a particular set of people, and it's not always the people as a whole. The people are those who are at danger of being dominated, being humiliated, and I think because of, on the one hand, Marxism in academia, and on the other, libertarianism ascendant within the power structure, we've come to understand our relations as at their root economic. The primary problem of political democracy is how to achieve equality, or how to protect property rights. But as I noted In my libertarianism series, this actually does a really poor job of explaining the behavior of elites a lot of the time. And Keynes said this, actually. He said, wealth is a means to an end. It's a means, firstly, to acquire goods and materials in life. But after a certain amount of time, it becomes a means to acquire honor and respect. And I think if you look at how wealth is used in the modern world, there's a deep layer of meaning around the rituals we have around money that are deeply related to honour, deeply related to the use of power, and also deeply related to the desire to dominate and to humiliate people. Think about just the, the difference... I'll take a very simple example. Think about just the difference in the look of someone's face, that the body language they have, and the attention and the respect and the dignity they get, depending on whether they hand over at a bar a black Amex, one of those nice weighty ones, unlimited spending, buy a small country on it, or whether they hand over a scratched out visa debit and wait anxiously to see if it will decline. And when it does decline, how does that feel? Has anyone else ever had that happen to them? It's a humiliating ritual, right? Whereas the ritual of just casually putting down that black Amex without even looking at the bill feels good, doesn't it? Everyone sort of looks at you like, ooh, that person. So what does any of that matter, right? Well, it matters because... I think there's an aspect to the use of wealth here that we're not really taking into account, and it maps to other things as well, which is that people... We, we look at the billionaires in our society, and you know, we're motivated by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren to say those billionaires should have less money, and they should be using it on socially good causes. I agree they should, but it's not rational, right? Like, what's the difference between having 10 billion and 11? I don't really see that there is one. It's about status and it's about dominance. And when you consider how we treat people at the very ends, both ends of the income spectrum, we see that our validation of people as people is affected by this. So at the very bottom, when people have no money at all, when they're homeless, they simply cease to become people. We don't look them in the eye. We don't talk to them. We shy away from them. They're not allowed to come into the same buildings that we are. Like animals. It's disgusting. And then, so if very poor people are something less than human to us, very rich people are something a bit more. The the deference that is demanded by them, it's not just enough. We can't speak badly of them. Think about how a How sanctimonious our billionaires get at the slightest criticism. And then think again about all of the humiliations that we insist on putting on the poor. Think about stuff like let's drug test welfare recipients. Like, how much money could that even conceivably save? It's not a rational interest unless you get out of this individual maximizing thing and think the interest of the, the, the powerful is always going to be to dominate and humiliate. And it's a humiliation ritual, right? If you think about all of these rituals we have as the purpose is to humiliate, and I think that goes to an original definition of, of, of freedom and slavery, I'm taking this from Orlando Patterson, is people locate in slavery the converse of what they want to see in freedom, so libertarians make slavery about economic control. They make it about like if you're, if someone's stealing from you, they're taking your labor. That's what makes you a slave, right? Which I think is a silly definition. Other people take other things, um, and Republicans take domination. But think about what Patterson defines slavery as. He defines slavery as the violent. Personal domination over generally dishonoured and natally alienated people. So, at the heart of slavery is not economic exploitation, though it is often used for that. At the desire, at the heart of it, is what Patterson calls a parasitic relationship, wherein the slave master is a parasite, drawing the honour and human worth and dignity, to taking that from the host, and making it his own. And I think understanding the relationship of power as one that's parasitic makes sense of so much in our society that we don't talk about. Now, there's not real slavery anymore, but like I say on the, you know, on the income spectrum, we do have people who are a little bit less than human and people who are a little bit more. And the way they draw their honor and power and the way it is parasitic, right? If everyone had a Rolex and a beautiful tailored cut shirt and the black Amex, if everyone had that, we'd no longer sort of go, ooh, that person. We'd no no longer look at them admiringly for it. It would just be regular. Their ability to have that honour and status is parasitic. It's drawing from others. And I think that applies to social justice causes as well. If you think about how we treat people who fall, you know, I'm going to be accused of, oh, you're engaging in oppression Olympics and so on. I just, that's not a serious concern. I'm not going to engage with it. I'm just noting I know that's what people are going to say. But if you look at how we talk about, say, I mentioned like a black, poor, trans, sex worker, say, right, um, it's completely, or it was until very, very recently, that's just the butt of a joke right? Oh, you know, I'm not politically correct. I don't care about my pronouns. All of these people running around, college kids. Look at how they're talked about. Look at, like, go search for, like, the intellectual dark web or Ben Shapiro, and look at the titles of the videos, right? Ben Shapiro dominates college students, humiliates, destroyed, destroyed in capital letters. Okay, come on, men who use the internet. Where have you heard these words before on the internet? What's at the heart of this? Is this about any sort of rational self-interest? No, it's a parasitic approach to human worth. I am the, what do these fucking morons call themselves? Like I'm the alpha, I'm the dominant one. And that dominance is proved by humiliating and degrading others. It's a parasitic approach relationship, right? And so I think that's, that's what follows from this, is we view people who gain honour and status through wealth, through whiteness and maleness, through social norms, as parasitic in a way. And freedom is found in the opposition to that, in us bridging together, creating solidarity. I'm not going to get into this episode here. Like, are we doing a primarily class-based or social justice-based model of striving for dignity? And meaning, I think it's both, and I might try and sort that out on a later episode. But the people here are those who fear that and fear correctly, that they will be dominated. Here meaning humiliated, that their sense of status, their sense of self-worth, will be vampirically taken from them to build up the status and self-worth in others. And if that is the people, freedom is the people having that collective sense of no. We are joined together when we are strong enough to say no. And if you ask you know, is America free? Well, it's dubious, isn't it? And I think that answers the question I posed at the very beginning, right? Is, are we free? You know, you could be reasonably middle class, but... You know, you have to kowtow at work. You have to do exactly what you're told to maintain that that middle-class income. You know, you're not a straight, white guy. So, like, you're always having to be careful with your identity. If you're black, you have to modulate your speech. You have to sort of talk white. Otherwise, people say, you're intimidating. You're scary. You're, meh. If you're, um, you know, gay or of a non-conforming gender identity, say then, you know, are you going to talk about your relationships? Are you going to be careful with that? And so, to answer the question I posed at the beginning of this, if we think about the people not as like an empirical category, not as like, well, this particular subsection on the census, but as those who feel humiliated, then I think we're in a much better position to answer the question of if we love freedom so much, why are we so opposed to Trump? Now, it's clear to me that the majority, maybe not the majority, but a large plurality of Americans, maybe a majority, feel humiliated a lot of the time. They feel not listened to. They feel taken advantage of in a way that sometimes relates to, not having money and resources, but sometimes doesn't. Sometimes relates to not having money and resources comparatively, but sometimes relates to rituals of humiliation and dehumanization that operate largely independently of that. And I think if you look at it that way, Trump's victory is a straightforward victory. For the desire of the powerful to humiliate and to dominate. Now, sometimes that will be the victory of the comparatively powerful. So, for instance, much had been made that a narrow majority of white women voted for Trump, even though this is someone who, at his heart, is obviously a misogynist, and obviously humiliating the women around him, be it walking into the changing rooms of, um, underage um, contestants to one of his shows, be it bragging about sexually assaulting women, that they're aligning with a different part of their identity. Many of my black radical friends have said, and I think it's correct, that they chose their whiteness over their gender, or maybe their economic situation over their gender. There's surely something to that. Which side are you on, Right. Are you on the side of the few or the many? And the few in this case, because we've, in modern societies, do seem to have more vectors of domination and humiliation. We have more opportunities for people to side with that. And Trump does seem to crystallize a drift in the American right, which has been going on for some time now, to encourage a trollish side, a side which takes pleasure in the humiliation of others. And rather than that being a a side effect, a consequence, has become their central aim. I think many people voted for Trump precisely because they knew it would upset liberals. I mean, when when you sign up to support The Daily Wire, which is Ben Shapiro's show, you get a mug which says liberal tears. The, the, The desire to humiliate isn't a bug, it's a feature and in that sense, Trump's victory, as it was, you know, losing the popular vote and perhaps with interference and all of that, was a profound step back for freedom. And it was profoundly contrary to the will of the people, the people as I'm thinking about as those who merely desire not to be humiliated. And what runs through Machiavelli's account of all of this is the asymmetry of those desires, the asymmetry of desiring to humiliate someone else, which I think, again, taking from Patterson, is correctly understood as a form of parasite, and the desire to simply be free of your parasites. That is freedom. So, if you've stuck with me thus far, what does all of that mean? How should that inform how those of us who are seeking freedom, how should we operate politically? What should we be calling for? What should we be seeking? Should we be participating within the political system or seeking to overthrow it? Should we be engaging within the rules of civil discourse or throwing milkshakes at politicians? Should we have a primarily class-based approach which seeks to get Pennsylvania back into the democratic column, or should we be engaging with communities of colour and non-traditional voters and trying to bring them into our coalition? That's the idea. That's the way of thinking about the world. But where does it get you? That and more in next week's episode.